Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz Today. And welcome to Tony Katz Today. I'm Guy Relford, sitting in for Tony as Tony's doing some traveling. I'm glad to be here with you. Starting in just under an hour from now, there's going to be a hearing in federal court in the Southern District of Florida, presided over by one Judge Bruce Reinhardt, that is going to consider the issue of whether documents related to the FBI's raid on President Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort in Florida, whether those documents should be unsealed, meaning released to the public, available for publication in the press, available for review by you and I. And it's an interesting proceeding. I don't know that before the show is over today, we will get news of a ruling because it's not necessarily apparent that Judge Reinhardt will make a ruling uh, at the conclusion of the hearing. A lot of times, I know this in in my cases and, and as someone who practices in both state and federal courts as an attorney, that sometimes judges take their ruling, what they call under advisement. And they can do some research. They can have their staff, their clerks, uh, do some additional research. They can simply ponder their decision before they make a ruling on the issue before them. Or they can also, at their discretion, make a ruling, what we say, from the bench. And if we get a ruling from the bench, and we're still here on the air, we'll do our best to get that to you. But there's a lot of interest in exactly what is going on in this courtroom in Florida, because let's reset what exactly has happened. The FBI, apparently, went to this federal judge in Florida and presented the judge, and by the way, the same judge, Judge Bruce Reinhardt, who is... uh, overseeing the proceedings today and will rule today is the same judge who originally signed the search warrant that authorized the FBI to search President Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort and seize property that they found there at the resort. So it's the same judge who signed the warrant. We have the warrant. I have the warrant right here in front of me which I'll get into a bit more here in the show because it's really very interesting. Again, as a lawyer and someone who practices in the area of constitutional law, including the law of the Fourth Amendment, search warrants and seizures and and searches made pursuant to warrant are always fascinating to me in terms of whether or not they truly pass muster under the Fourth Amendment. And we have something to talk about on that score relative to this warrant, as I'll get into later in the show. But why there's a lot of interest in this is because, again, resetting what has happened, people in law enforcement and a particular U.S. attorney, that's what we call prosecutors at the federal level. You have a U.S. attorney for a particular district, a federal district, and then you have assistant U.S. attorneys who work for them, all of whom obviously work under the direction of the attorney general, one Merrick Garland. So you had law enforcement with a U.S. attorney's involvement, come to court here in the Southern District of Florida, where the Mar-a-Lago Resort is located, and they came to this judge and they said, Judge, we want a warrant. We want to be able to search for some stuff. The judge then considers whether or not 
there's sufficient legal basis to issue that warrant. Well, what is that determination? What process does a judge go through? They ask themselves two questions. Is there a probable cause that a crime has been committed? And that is based on whatever evidence they're presented with, typically by law enforcement. In this case, apparently by the FBI. That can be live testimony. More often, it's in the form of an affidavit. The affidavit lays out the argument and the evidence, much more importantly, the evidence that establishes probable cause that a crime has been committed. And obviously, that has to identify what particular crime they're talking about and what evidence supports it. Then they have to establish also a reasonable basis to believe that there is evidence relevant to the commission of that crime that there is probable cause to believe has been committed located at a particular area they're asking to search. The judge then considers those two questions. Is there probable cause a crime has been committed? And is there a reasonable likelihood that there will be evidence located at the area to be searched relevant to the commission of that crime? And if the answer to either one of those questions is no, they don't issue the warrant. They also, as commanded by the Fourth Amendment, are required, that is, judges considering this issue, are required to narrowly grant warrants and only grant warrants that are very specific in terms of what crimes being investigated and why there's probable cause to believe it's been committed, and in particular, what documents or other items they're to be searching for and where they can search. Why do they have to be specific about that? Why is that necessary? Why is that a legal requirement? Well, that comes right out of the wording of the Fourth Amendment itself. And, and when you read the actual Fourth Amendment, it's really, it's interesting to me. I mean, I've, I've litigated Fourth Amendment cases something obviously I spent a lot of time on uh, in school, but also as a constitutional rights attorney, it's something that, that, that I've paid a lot of attention to over the years. But what's interesting to me is to read the Fourth Amendment in the context of exactly what happened at Mar-a-Lago. Exactly what happened in terms of the FBI, what they did, how broadly they searched, how broadly the area was defined where they could search, and how broadly the documents or other items that they were allowed to search for are described Bumps up pretty hard, I got to tell you, against the actual Fourth Amendment. Now let's just let's just read it right here. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects. <laughs> so what are we talking about with President Trump? His person. Well, he wasn't at Mar-a-Lago, but his house, his papers, and his effects are directly implicated here. The right of the people to, to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue, this is where it gets really interesting, no warrant shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. So that's the standard. Then obviously there's been 200 years of case law that's come down interpreting what exactly that means. But we're going to go through the warrant itself and talk about whether the warrant appears to meet the requirements of the Fourth Amendment. In particular, does it particularly describe, in the wording of the Fourth Amendment, the place to be searched or the things that should be searched for? And 
are those descriptions consistent with the idea that only areas to be searched ought to be where it's reasonably likely to find evidence of a crime? It gets fascinating to me. But what's going on today in the Southern District of Florida, also the interest in that also comes right out of the wording of the Fourth Amendment because it says, no warrant shall issue but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation. What's sought to be released? There are various news agencies that are asking the court to release this. But Trump himself has come out with a very public statement because he was asked, the Justice Department, so we want, we want to know whether Trump either supports or opposes the release of this information. And the, the Trump campaign, in fact, Trump himself came out with a public statement on his new social media platform that said, not only do I not oppose it, I'm specifically asking for it. But what's sought to be released, particularly, is the affidavit submitted by the FBI that establishes the probable cause for the search to begin with. What evidence is that based on? Harken back to the whole Russia investigation launched against Trump when a lot of the probable cause for the issuance of the warrants that allowed the FBI to spy on the Trump campaign, that's not an exaggeration. That's not me, Guy Relford, voicing an opinion. That's what came out of the investigation that went in to the origins and examined the origins of the Russia investigation. The probable cause established there turned out to, in large part, be based on the so-called Steele dossier, which was a fabrication. An admitted fabrication done by people with connections to the Clinton campaign. So the basis for the issuance of a warrant can get really interesting, particularly in terms of whether a judge examining that evidence would conclude that it's credible and sufficiently credible to create probable cause for the issuance of a warrant given the Fourth Amendment saying no warrant shall issue, but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation. That oath or affirmation is exactly what we're after, I say we, the news media and others, in the hearing today. What was that affidavit? What did it say? What did the FBI have to establish probable cause that President Trump had committed an actual crime? And what crime? Now, Justice Department has since come out and identified some crimes they think they're investigating, or there's probable cause to believe Trump committed. One under the Espionage Act, one under the Presidential Records Act, and then there's an obstruction charge. Well, that's what they love. They've gone after him for obstruction before. It didn't work out very well. But we'll get into a lot more of that and, and, and describe how this process will go and what we expect to see come out of it. Uh, when we come back, right now we're a little past the quarter hours. Time to take a break. This is Guy Relford in for Tony Katz on Tony Cast today. And welcome back. I'm Guy Relford sitting in for Tony Katz on Tony Cast today as Tony's doing some traveling. So we're talking about what really is an interesting hearing that's going to go on here in about 38 minutes in southern in the Southern District of Florida, where Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt's going to be presented with arguments, uh, one from a coalition of news media, primarily, who's seeking the release of the documents associated with the establishment of probable cause for that same judge, Bruce Reinhardt, to have issued the warrant that resulted in the FBI raid on Miralago. 
But I've heard some people out taking exception with the use of the word raid in this context. I'm sorry. You show up in body armor and uh, long long rifles and uh, ballistic helmets and, and, and come in in force. The reports were there were up to 30 armed agents storming the facility. I think that's pretty much within anyone's definition of a raid. But at any rate, the, the affidavit that goes into this, the affidavit that established the probable cause, at least in the magistrate judge's mind at the time, to issue the warrant, is generating an awful lot of attention. And the Justice Department is working awfully hard to try to keep it sealed. And, and they're coming out, and, and, and by the way, let's, let's back up. Is it typical, in a typical criminal case in federal court, for the probable cause affidavit, that's what a lot of times we call this, is it typical, is it usual for that affidavit to be revealed, to be disclosed? Well, it's virtually always after charges are filed, and here there's a timing issue, after charges are filed and a criminal prosecution has begun in federal court, it's almost always reveal that is the probable cause affidavit at a minimum to defense counsel because counsel gets to examine whether the original warrant that resulted in the the location identity the seizure of any evidence to be used in the case there's always a potential argument that that violated fourth amendment principles in terms of the issuance of the warrant to begin with and there was never any probable cause for the warrant to have been issued so defense lawyers by definition get to see what probable cause there was or there was not as part of their defense of their client in that federal court case. So the probable cause affidavits are not something the government gets to keep close to the vest and not disclose throughout a criminal prosecution. Really ever. What's publicly disclosed and what's filed, quote-unquote, under seal in the case is a different question. Things might be revealed to the public or unsealed, disclosed to the public, that, that are first redacted. What's redacted mean? Well, you go through and you black out any particularly sensitive information, like, for instance, the name of witnesses. And that's really what the Justice Department is arguing here. That's why they're saying, oh, no, we, this shouldn't be revealed. It shouldn't be disclosed. It shouldn't be released to the public. And this is a quote day or so ago uh, in a written argument submitted to the court, says, if disclosed, the affidavit would serve as a roadmap to the government's ongoing investigation, providing specific details about its its direction and likely course in a manner that uh, a, that is highly likely to compromise future investigative steps, saying the affidavit contains, quote, highly sensitive information about witnesses, end quote. They go on to talk about witnesses. In addition, information about witnesses is particularly sensitive given the high-profile nature of this matter and the risk that the revelation of witness identities would impact their willingness to cooperate with the investigation. Disclosure of the government's affidavit at this stage would also likely chill future cooperation by witnesses whose assistance may be sought at this investigation as this investigation progresses as well as in other high-profile investigations. Well, what that ignores is the whole idea that particular witness identities can get redacted out of the document. 
you don't necessarily need a witness's identity. It's certainly relevant. And, and in terms of their objectivity, what role they play, what biases they may have, what motivation they have to outright lie so as to support a, 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 a baseless prosecution, identity can be very, very important. But in terms of at least revealing what information the government had, whether or not from a credible source, you can release the same affidavit that is being sought in this hearing and not necessarily identify all of those witnesses. You can redact them out now when the investigation is over and the prosecution begins, then release the unredacted document. All of that's possible. The government, in its same filing, tried to head that off by saying, well, yes, we could redact things, but if we do, we will be required to so thoroughly redact the documents being requested As they describe it, it would be so extensive as to render the remaining unsealed text devoid of meaningful content. And you've seen you've seen those documents in other contexts. They'll say, oh, yeah, we'll release that. And then that they release a piece of paper that's got every line blacked out on it. Or, you know, it just doesn't uh, black out the ofs and the thes <laughs> and the punctuation. And that's what they're threatening to do here if... Judge Reinhardt orders the document unsealed. But there is going to be much more to be said about this. And what I'm going to do after this next break is actually talk about the warrant itself. Because I think it's fascinating how broadly it's written. And I do think it's a fair question. And I'm sure if there, if, and that's a huge if, there's a criminal investigation followed by an actual prosecution, the filing of charges, that President Trump's lawyers are going to spend a lot of time looking at whether there was ever probable cause for the issuance of this warrant to, partic- it, it, to begin with, and in addition, whether the warrant was sufficiently narrow in terms of the area to be searched and the items to be searched for as to comply with Fourth Amendment principles. Going right back to the language of the Fourth Amendment, was there probable cause? Well, we only know that once the affidavit is released. But the warrant itself, which we have, does it particularly describe the place to be searched and the things to be seized? That'll be an interesting discussion when we get into it here after this break, because I do think the Trump lawyers are going to have quite a bit to say on that point as well. But right now here, we're coming up on the bottom bottom of the hour. It's time to take a break. This is Guy Relford sitting in for Tony Katz on Tony Katz Today. And welcome back to Tony Cast Today. I'm Guy Relford sitting in for Tony. By the way, I will be back here in this chair again Monday. So I know there's going to be someone else filling in tomorrow. I'm not sure who that is going to be. But uh, but I'll be back Monday. And I always enjoy doing this. Uh, it's great that Tony can get a little time off. Although um, he's not on vacation. He's doing several other media appearances. Uh, doing quite a bit of national news as uh as I understand it, and good for him. He does a great job. You see him on Fox and Friends, um, on Fox News, uh, News Nation, several other outlets. 
and uh, always does a great job. So while he's off doing important things, it's fun for me to be here uh, doing my best to fill in as well as possible. But in the meantime, there's a lot to talk about about this hearing. And we'll let, uh, we'll, we'll let that transpire as it does. We'll report back on it when we know. If there's a ruling from the bench, uh, we'll certainly discuss it. And if and when we get our hands on this actual affidavit, redacted or otherwise. And by the way, even if the judge rules from the bench today and says, yes, I'm going to release it, he will, I'll guarantee you, will give the government an opportunity to redact it. And that can take some time. And then there's going to be a fight over how much they redact. So I don't know that we should expect to see the actual affidavit here anytime soon. But it is interesting to me because the affidavit will tell us if and when we see it. We'll see it eventually. Uh, it may be after either there's a decision by the U.S. Attorney's Office to not file criminal charges at all, after criminal charges are actually filed and it's disclosed as part of that litigation. I don't know. We'll see it eventually. But it'll be interesting to see what the FBI had and whether it truly does, as determined by Magistrate Judge Reinhardt, establish probable cause that there was a, a, a crime committed by President Trump and whether it established that there was a reasonable likelihood that there's evidence at Mar-a-Lago that supports the allegation that President Trump committed those crimes. But in the meantime, it was fascinating to me to look at the actual affidavit. This has been out there here for just a couple of days. But it describes the entire resort at Mar-a-Lago as being the area to be searched. At least the entire resort that President Trump had any access to. Well, it's his damn resort. I can't imagine there are too many places he doesn't have access to. If there are members or guests there in their own rooms in their resort, I'm sure those, or I shouldn't say I'm sure, I would presume those were not searched. But this was fascinating to me to read the description of where the, the FBI agents, all 30 of them that descended on Mar-a-Lago, were authorized by the warrant to search. It was the premises located at 1100 South Ocean Boulevard in Palm Beach, Florida. Further described as a resort, a club, a residence, Located at the intersection of Southern Boulevard and South Ocean Boulevard, it is described as a mansion. This was just impressive to me, frankly. I, I, I've never been, been to Mar-a-Lago. I've never really seen much of a description of it. But this is what the FBI was tasked with searching. A mansion with approximately 58 bedrooms, 33 bathrooms on a 17-acre site. The locations to be searched include the 45 office. Sounds like... President Trump's personal office, all storage rooms, all other rooms or areas within the premises used or available to be used by the former president and his staff in which boxes or documents could be stored, including all structures or buildings on the estate. All structures or buildings on the estate. That's fascinating to me. How broad is that? And by the way, one thing that, that has leapt out at me and there's got to be something here I'm missing, which is, you know what? I, hey, I'm an old guy, or I'm in my 60s. I've been practicing law for over 30 years. And even at this stage in my career, I've gone largely digital. I hate it when anybody sends me paper. Somebody says, oh, I'll mail that to you. Don't e email it to me. Scan it, or excuse me, don't mail it to me. Scan it and email it to me. Let me keep an electronic file on this. I'd much rather have an electronic file with all the documents I need on my computer than a banker's box full of documents. 
And I'm an old guy. I got to believe most people are, are, are functioning electronically much more than with paper. And yet this investigation seems to be entirely focused on paper because it talks about where boxes or documents could be stored. And what's fascinating to me in terms of the area to be searched does not even mention where computers or servers might be located. But Hillary Clinton's getting a big laugh reading that going, ha, they missed one there. Your secret server in your bathroom and your personal residence is where it's at, Hillary would tell you, kept illegally. But even the the attachment that goes on to say what they're being tasked, what they're authorized by the warrant, and that is the FBI agents conducting the raid, what they're authorized to seize. It talks about physical documents with classification markings. It talks about boxes of documents. And then it talks about information including communications in any form regarding the retrieval, storage, or transmission of national defense information. In- interesting. National defense information or classified material. And then this one's fascinating to me. Any government and or presidential records created between January 20, 2017 and January 20, 2021. So that's any government presidential record created during the entire Trump presidency. So it literally means if he autographed a napkin for somebody, that would be included within this search warrant. If he autographed a picture, if he posed for a picture, how does that evidence of a crime, how is that particularly narrow in the description contained in the warrant And it raises the question again of whether it is specifically narrow and specific so as to comply with Fourth Amendment principles. All that will be litigated and at least discussed, depending on how far this investigation and or prosecution goes. Again, we'll let you know if we get a ruling out of Florida, but there's going to be a lot of eyes on this and a lot of interest in this. Uh, We're going to shift gears just a bit and bring the focus back from Florida right here uh, to Indianapolis, central Indiana. And uh, we're going to have a guest here uh, after the next break who is uh, FOP, uh, FOP president, Rick Snyder. And he's president of the FOP District 86, which is here in, in central Indiana and in Marion County. And a lot of times people uh, believe that uh, the FOP uh, just represents uh, IMPD here in Marion County. Uh, at least in this location, and that's not true. They, they represent cops at all levels, state, local, federal, who are located here, doing their job here. The FOP represents all of them. And the FOP has done something, and I, don't want, I won't call it unprecedented because I don't know for a fact that it's never happened before, but the FOP is looking at, for instance, the recent attack, in fact, recent murder of... an Elwood police officer, Noah Shonavez. And here this guy's a rookie officer, young guy, already a military veteran, but a rookie officer only on the Elwood Police Department for months, is murdered by a guy who was a multi-time serious violent felon who had already had sentences reduced, who had had convictions coming out of Marion County that you would think would still have this guy sitting in jail. 
and a young, beloved, respected police officer loses his life at the hands of this dirtbag, this subhuman who ought to be locked up somewhere by all accounts. And as the organization that represents police officers, the FOP understandably wants to take a hard look at this, look at whose actions, whether it's Marion County Prosecutor's Office, whether it's the judicial system generally, whether it's particular judges, but who involved in this chain of events, and it's not limited to the murder of Officer Chavez. But generally speaking, is the level of crime we're seeing, including the level of violence directed against police officers, traceable back to the revolving criminal justice system, the revolving door of the criminal justice system that we have in Marion County? Something the FOP is taking a hard look at, and it's completely understandable that they are, because it's not only putting the community's health and safety at risk, but very specifically. It's putting the crosshairs on, and no pun intended, on our officers out there who are dealing with the violent criminals that are out on the street when a lot of us would say probably ought to be sitting in a jail cell somewhere. So when we come back, we're going to have Rick Snyder, FOP president, and talk about what FOP is doing in particular to shine light on this issue and what may come out of those efforts. So right now we're taking a break. This is Guy Relford in for Tony Katz on Tony Katz Today. And welcome back to Tony Cast Today. I'm Guy Relford sitting in for Tony, and it's a pleasure to be here in the seat doing the show today in Tony's stead. As I mentioned before the break, uh, the Fraternal Order of Police here in central Indiana are, 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 are taking uh, a step to identify issues going on in the criminal justice system uh, here in Marion County. And joining me now is Rick Snyder, uh, FOP president. And, and Rick, my friend, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having us. So I, I started to call this unprecedented, and I, you know, the, the lawyer in me says don't always, uh, don't don't ever say always or never because you're probably wrong and may have happened before. But FOP is doing something here that certainly I've not heard of in a while, and I'm an old guy. Um, describe a little bit what FOP is doing to direct attention at the issue of the revolving door of the criminal justice system here in Indiana. Well, obviously, it's been no secret that uh, we've been taking substantial steps to bring attention to the issue of the revolving door of criminal justice in Indianapolis, specifically for repeat violent offenders. We've documented story after story for three years now uh, that are heinous incidents that have resulted in serious bodily injury or death of victims throughout our community, but also critical injuries and death to officers in Indianapolis and surrounding communities. You know, this recent event uh, with Officer Shanavez in Elwood, Indiana, was just the latest example. But quite frankly, Guy, it was the straw that broke the camel's back for our officers, where they said, we are done, and we are directing you as the president of the FOP to convene confidence votes on the Indianapolis prosecutor and the Marion County court system. And what they're saying by this is that, uh, you know, a vote of confidence isn't unheard of in some communities, but I'm not aware of us having one, at least in the 25 years that I've been on the police department. And uh, most people uh, can't recall uh, when we've had one prior ones. Um, and in fact, we cannot find an example of where a vote of confidence has been held on a court system anywhere in our country. The guy I have to tell you, 
I think law enforcement and, quite frankly, the public in general has reached a point where they realize that we have been the victim of a failed social experiment on the people of our nation. And it's been an unchallenged lie uh, of this issue of the need for low bonds and the revolving door and, and decriminalization of criminals, especially for repeat violent offenders. And I think you see Indianapolis law enforcement leading the way, and we've convened this vote. It's going uh, right now. Uh, it's going to be occurring through the end of this week, and I would anticipate we will be publicly announcing the results possibly as early as uh, Monday of next week. So, Rick, what are the outcomes of this? Is it going to be a simple thumbs up, th- thumbs down on A, Marion County Prosecutor uh, Ryan Mears, um, uh, and generally speaking, the Marion County judicial system, is it going to be, we vote no confidence period end of story, or is it going to be, is it going to be more detail on that in terms of identification of problems? And, and, and what, what do you see as the likely outcome of this? And, and third question, and, and a lawyer should never ask three questions on top of each other, but how is this different for instance, than the fact that the FOP, uh, district 86 has already endorsed Cindy Carrasco for prosecutor as opposed to Ryan Mears? Well, first and foremost, first and foremost, the ballot, there's two separate ballots and they simply ask, do you have confidence in the Marion County prosecutor? Yes or no. Do you have confidence in the Marion County court system? Yes or no. The reason why it is uh, just yes or no and is to make clear, do you have confidence or not? You know, it's one thing to do an endorsement of a candidate and say, mm-hmm. we believe this candidate is better than another. It's another entirely to say, that your law enforcement officers do not have confidence in the current people doing the job. There's a big difference there. And I think it, I think people really get it when you talk about the court system. Listen, here's why it's such a big deal. And, and I don't know what the outcome is going to be. I know that the members directed it to occur. But if your police officers say that they don't have confidence in your court system, it begs the question, why should you? And, and a bigger question is this guy. That's monumental. And people say, well, what do you do with that? Well, I can tell you the first thing we're going to do is be initiating conversations with those that oversee our Marion County court system. Remember, that's an arm of the state of Indiana, mm-hmm. as well as the prosecutor, which is a which is an official of the state of Indiana as well, and saying that we've got huge problems in the capital city of our state. I just talked to some folks yesterday, and they said, why should it matter to us what's going on in Indianapolis? Well, it's because as Indianapolis goes, so does the rest of the state. And that's why people are getting hip to this. You're seeing mayors from surrounding communities that are now uh, uh, publicly outlining their support for an alternative candidate for the prosecutor's office. Listen, we have a a criminal court system right now that has a backlog of 37,000 cases awaiting trial. Now, if you divide that up, that means that the Marion County court system has to administer 142 criminal trials every single day that they are in session in a calendar year to catch up. Mm. Now, Guy, you know that is impossible. It is. That is a hole that is very difficult to dig out of. It means that criminal defendants are awaiting their justice, which they deserve, but it also means that all those victims of crime are also awaiting judge uh, justice, and we have judges and prosecutors who are twiddling their thumbs. We have a prosecutor right now that's out today publicly in pictures Again, trying to figure out ways to clear people's criminal records. Uh, He spends more time telling you what crimes he won't prosecute than the ones that he will. We've got a prosecutor that's more focused on being a protester than the prosecutor. He's more focused on being a protagonist than the prosecutor. And uh, again, he spends more time telling you what crimes he won't prosecute. We need a prosecutor, not a public defender. We also need a court system, by their own words, Guy, that have acknowledged that they have problems. 
Remember, this didn't happen in a vacuum. We have a court system that uh, uh, acknowledged that because of computer glitches, the misspelling of, of, a, of a repeat violent offender's name, they, that offender was released and went on to shoot a police officer in the throat. And, and, and the court system and judges that are literally telling us that they're not cross-checking people that we arrest based on their not just their name, but things like their date of birth, social security number, height, weight, all these other things. They want us to believe that a one-letter spelling glitch release repeat uh, repeat violent offender into our community it begs the question how many other repeat violent offenders are being unnecessarily cycled back into our neighborhood well exactly and a couple things as, as we close rick and forgive me we're running out of time but that backlog in the trial schedule also motivates prosecutors to cut sweetheart deals and let people out with minimal sentence or no jail time or sticking people out on monitors but ultimately what i hope this is is a message to the voters of marion county uh, when the no confidence vote comes back in the meantime, thanks so much. This is Guy Rilford in for Tony Katz.